you have a Bible, why don't you open with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, if you've not already done so, we're going to be in verses 33 to verse 37. If you're joining with us for the first time this morning, we've been in a series together uh, looking at the magisterial, uh, transformative, ethical vision that Jesus gives to us in the Sermon on the Mount. And if you were here last week or maybe the week before that, you can actually take a breath of of air right now, just kind of breathe easy because uh, after our emotionally intense and uncomfortable sermon last week on sex, uh, this morning we're just talking about oaths. So that's, that's um, be hopefully a little easier for us all this week. Uh, but actually, uh, these, uh, the, the, the text that we're given today addresses something that I think is very relevant in our lives. Now, of course, on one hand, most of us are not wrestling all week long with whether or not we should take an oath or uh, whether or not we should swear on the Holy Bible and this sort of thing. Uh, these are not real ethical issues that most of us wrestle with from week to week. But what this text is actually addressing is something very relevant to all of our lives, and that is truthful, simple, and honest speech. It addresses the area of integrity and truth-telling with our words. I recently heard a story about a youth pastor who challenged his, his students to read uh, Mark chapter 17. And so he had all the students together and he said, hey, I, I want to challenge you guys next week. We're going to be looking together at Mark 17. So I want you all to go home and just pour over it, read it this week. And one of the students who was there got all inspired and he determined that he was going to go home that week and read Mark 17. Well, he goes home and uh, as a lot of us do after being at church, he just kind of forgets about what he had promised, what he had determined to do. Well, at any rate, he comes back the next week, and the youth pastor asked the students, how many of you read Mark 17 this last week? And, and a couple of students stood up, and even though he didn't read, he just, he had been inspired to read, he had wanted to read, so he thought, well, you know, that's probably good enough. So he stood up, and the youth pastor pointed them out, and he said, you see all these students? He says, these are the committed students. They were pouring over the Bible this week, and now I want you all to open up in your Bibles to Mark 17. So this young kid, he's standing up in front of the group. He starts turning his Bible. He gets to Mark 15, and then he gets to Mark 16, and then Luke 1. So Mark 15, Mark 16, and Luke 1. That's right, there is no chapter 17 in Mark's gospel. And the youth pastor then said, and now I want to talk to you all about lying. (laughs) It's kind of a dirty trick, wasn't it? But of course, lying is a problem even for church-going people, even for, for Christian people. Lying is an issue. Dishonesty is almost an epidemic in our culture. In 2016, the word of the year was post-truth. The word of the year, the post-truth. And of course, our politicians, every time they get up to speak and they give their addresses or they have their debates, uh, the next day, you'll see on the news something about a fact checker. I was reading this week about the fact checkers. There's a whole website devoted to this. And uh, they actually have six categories that they rate different uh, statements that are made by politicians. And one one, uh, is uh, the, the statement was true. Uh, The second one is mostly true. Uh, The third is half true, half false. The fourth was mostly false. 
Uh, the fifth was false. And then the, the last category is reserved for those who are making these outrageously dishonest statements, just patently false. And, and it was pants on fire. You've seen this? So liar, liar, pants on fire. So we, we see this in our leaders. It, it is something that we see among our politicians. But what I want you to consider this morning is, are there areas in your life where you are dishonest? Now, if your only categories are true and liar, liar, pants on fire, then you might, be, uh, you might let yourself off a little bit easy. But are there ways in which you shade the truth? Ways in which you create verbal smoke screens and you kind of give false impressions or by allowing people to think something about you without correcting it, you give the wrong impression. Are there ways in which you lie, in which you deceive, in which you manipulate people's impression, their opinion of you? And is this, it is this that Jesus addresses this morning in our text. Now, as we pointed out earlier, uh, the, the, the kind of presenting issue that Jesus is talking about is oaths, but ultimately he's getting to the subject of speaking truth. But before we get to what he says about truth speaking, we need to understand something of what Jesus says about oaths. And so here's what we're gonna do this morning. We're gonna first talk about the purpose of oaths, and then secondly, we'll talk about the problem with oaths, and then finally, uh, we'll look together at the alternative to oaths, which is speaking truth. And so let's talk together first about the purpose of oaths. Look at what Jesus says in chapter five, verse 33. He says, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Now here, Jesus is not quoting a direct passage in the Old Testament like he does in some of the earlier portions. Instead, he's given a summation of the basic teaching in the Old Testament. You see, throughout uh, the, the Torah, throughout the law of God, there is allowance made and sometimes even commands or, or instruction uh, to take oaths and, and how you should take an oath and, and what that was all about. And so to kind of like get this, we need to delve into a little bit of the role that oaths played in the ancient world particularly in the life of Israel. You see, in ancient Israel, they understood something that I think most of us understand. In fact, it's something that almost all thoughtful people understand, and that's that the health and the well-being and the flourishing of any society and of any human community is dependent. It is absolutely dependent upon truth-telling. And where there is a human community and where, uh, where there is a human society where truth is in low supply, that human community, that society suffers. And we know this is to be true in business, it's true in politics, it's true in sales and marriage and family and in church. Where truth is absent, human community suffers. I mean, could you imagine what life would be like if you couldn't say trust that a gallon of gas was really a gallon of gas? You ever wondered that when you go pump gas in your car? How do I know that they're giving me the right amount of gasoline? How do you know that you're not getting ripped off? I mean, how do you know that when you go to the dentist and she tells you that you need to get all of this work done on your teeth, how do you know she's telling you the truth and that she's not just trying to get, you know, kind of drum up more work? And so where truth is lacking, society suffers. And of course, it's not just society in general. Where truth is lacking, our relationships suffer. Marriage and parenting relationships and friendships and relationships within the church are grounded. They're founded upon trust. 
And so where deceit creeps in, relationships suffer. And so they understood this. They knew this in the first century. But the question is, okay, if truth is so important, how can you guarantee that when somebody makes a statement that you can trust that statement? In other words, how do you know that they're telling you the truth? It's the same question I ask when I take my car to the mechanic and they say, you need to get this work done in your car. You're like, how, how do I know that I can trust that person? Well, in, in our day and age, if you're asking that question, you have to, you, you typically ask for it in what? You say, I want to get that in writing. Give it to me in writing. Now, in the ancient world, it wasn't a written culture, it was an oral culture. And so where we ask for things in writing, they would ask for things with an oath. They would say, give me an oath, you know, guarantee that you are going to be true to your word. And so if you were uh, walking around in a dusty marketplace, you would hear people making these oaths, and the marketplace was just riddled with oaths. And so you might hear them say, on my beard, I swear that this camel is a good, strong, healthy camel, or, or by your life, this land is fertile. And, uh, uh, you know, by, you know, on, on, the, on the soul of my father, Diego Montoya, <laughs> you know. Princess Bride, yes. Um, but they would guarantee their statement with an oath. And the Old Testament, as I said before, acknowledges this. The vows and the oaths in the Old Testament were taken very seriously. And so in order to guarantee the vow, there needed to be these consequences, these very severe consequences if you broke a vow. And so when you read through the Old Testament, you see it encourages oaths, but it also threatens severe punishment to anyone who breaks the oath. And so Jesus is basically summing up the Old Testament teaching when he says, you've heard it was said, you shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform what you say. Now, there was a debate, though, in the first century. You see, there were different kinds of oaths people would make. In the Old Testament, actually, one of the things that was forbidden was to take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And oftentimes when we think about swearing, we think about somebody using four-letter words. But in the Old Testament, that really wasn't what swearing was about. It was about using the holy name of God in vain. And so they would make an oath and they would say, by God, I will keep this oath. And the Old Testament forbid that. It said, don't take the Lord, the name of the Lord your God in vain. And so in place of swearing to God, they would swear, swear upon things that were lesser than God. And so they would swear upon heaven or upon the temple or upon the altar in the temple. And then there was some debate that developed which oaths were binding and which ones weren't. In other words, were there some things that you could swear on that should be taken with a little more serious, seriousness than other things? It was kind of like, uh, you remember uh, when you were in elementary school and a little uh, boy or girl would come up to you and, you know, Sally would say, I like Johnny, but it's a secret. Don't tell anyone. And you would say, oh, I will not tell anyone. And then the next day she comes to you and she says, what happened? I told you it was a secret. You broke your promise. And you say, all right. I had my fingers crossed. <laughs> fingers crossed meant the oath was not binding, right? 
And so in the first century, there were certain statements, certain oaths that were binding and others that you could get out on because they were not made on very uh, as serious of things. And so, for example, uh, Matthew 23, Jesus alludes to some of this. And he says, you religious teachers, you say, if you swear on the temple, it's not binding. But if you swear on the gold that was in the temple, then the oath is binding. Or if you swear upon the altar, the oath is binding. But if you swear, or if the oath is not binding, but if you swear upon the, the, the gift that is on the altar, then, you know, the oath is binding. And so Jesus, though, looks at all this practice, all the kind of marketplace that's riddled with these oaths, and he says, stop it. He said, you've heard it was said of old, you shall keep whatever vow you perform. But look at what Jesus says, verse 34. He says, but I say to you, and now what he's going to do is he's going to highlight for us three problems with oaths. Look what he says. He says, but I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let instead what you say be simply yes or no. And then look what he says. Anything more than this comes from evil. Now, this is interesting because the Old Testament allowed for oaths. And yet Jesus is saying to make an oath comes from evil. What gives here? Well, the first problem with oaths was this. Oaths were, number one, out of step with the new world that Jesus was creating. You see, oaths in the ancient world functioned something like the way a police officer carrying around a weapon functions in our world. And why do you need a weapon in the world? Well, it's because there's the presence of evil. But if there were no evil, if all was done in truth and all was done with goodness, you wouldn't need police officers. And so, too, if everything was right and good and perfect in the world, you wouldn't need oaths. And Jesus has come not simply to make a bad world a little bit better by his ethical teaching. Instead, Jesus has come through his own life and death and resurrection to create a whole new world, to inaugurate a new kingdom, and to ultimately bring that kingdom to bear on earth even as it is in heaven. And so when Jesus is giving his kingdom ethics, he says, look, in my kingdom ethics, oaths are no longer needed because I am creating a whole new kind of world. And I am forming a new community of people who will represent and reflect the world to come in the future, in the life that they live now. That's his church. That's you. That's me. That's his people. And he's saying this, in our life together, we ought to reflect this new world to come because that, that old oath and lying, all, that's part of the old world. You are people of truth in this new reality. And so he says, oaths have no place among my people. They come from evil, as it were. But secondly, I want you to note that Jesus also highlights this. He says, look, not only are oaths part of the old age and out of step with the new world I'm creating, Jesus wants us to see that oaths presume too much. Too much about what? Too much about yourself. Look at what he says back in verse uh, 36. I like this verse. He says, do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. You say, well, we can use dye. Well, yeah, he doesn't mean that. 
saying, look, you have no control over whether or not your hair falls out of your head and what color you're going to naturally turn whatever, you know. Uh, if, if you're a young man and you go to a church in Sierra Madre that has some history, your hair might turn gray. <laughs> and it is. But he says, you can't, you, here's his point. He says, you are frail people. And there are limits to your own humanity. God is the one with authority over your head. God has authority even over the hairs on your head. And you are bound by the limits of your frail humanity. And the implication is this. Because there are limits to what you can actually do and can't do, you need to be careful about what you promise you will do. You know, it's easy to say things like, well, I'll pray for you. Oh, I'll pray for you. But I'm not really acknowledging my limits, that I'm lazy or that I'm busy or that I'm forgetful or that I don't pray as much as I should and that I probably will not pray for that person. Or you say, well, I'll get it done by tomorrow. You can't get it done by tomorrow. Are you kidding me? Why did you promise that? You're not acknowledging your limits. Jesus says the first problem with oaths is that it doesn't acknowledge human limits. And in our speech to each other, we must recognize that there are limits to what we can promise and what we can guarantee. And so we need the humility to say, look, there are certain things I can commit to and certain things I can't because I just can't get it done. I can't do what I say I will do. Now, some of us, if you're like me and you're a people pleaser, you need to hear this. Because you're constantly saying the right thing to people and telling them what they want to hear when you know full well that you don't have a track record that supports what you're saying. So oaths presume too much about yourself. But the real problems with oaths is this, and this is really what what Jesus kind of develops here, is that oaths create a two-tier level of speech. Look back at the text again. He says, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great, th- great king. And here's what he's saying. He's saying, look, don't presume that there are these special holy places and holy things that if you will kind of attach your words to that thing, it's suddenly going to imbue it with greater weight and significance. There are not two tiers of speech uh, which oaths create, which the first tier are statements that you make that are backed up by an oath that you need to keep because it's connected to something sacred, and then other statements that you make that don't need to be kept. You can be slightly dishonest. You can kind of shade the truth. And Jesus says, look, stop it. Don't create a two-tier level of speech. And let me just ask you, are there ways in which you create a two-tier level of speech? Let me give you an example of this. Uh, There may be statements that I make or you make that might be labeled statements of convenience, and then there are statements of truth. Statements of convenience are statements that I make because at this moment it's convenient for me to shade the truth, to present myself this way, to kind of like exaggerate, to add on a little spin, uh, to uh, make a, a promise I know full well I'm not going to keep because it's convenient, and then other statements that I'm like, no, I, I said it, I'm going to do it. Are there ways in which you do that in your life? Speech of convenience and then honest speech. 
You know, it's convenient sometimes to lie if you are in business because you might get the sale. This uh, last couple weeks, um, I've gone to the DMV now twice. Both times went for three hours. It was awesome. Such a good experience going to the DMV in California. I love it. And, uh, but, you know, after I'd waited in these big lines, we go up to register our car. We went to get our car registered. I know you say you've been here for a year and you haven't gotten your car registered, but at least I'm being honest about it. It took me a year. And to get a driver's license, uh, a California driver's license, and so we weren't sure whether or not we'd stay. But, you know, when I got up there and we, you know, gave them all the paperwork and, and they, they, they said, okay, um, they gave me a bill. It was for $2,000. I'm like, $2,000? I'm like, what on earth, you know? And they said, well, um, you have to pay taxes on your car. I said, well, I bought my car in New Mexico. And they said, no, no, you need to pay taxes on your car um, for the privilege of having your car in California. Now, the, the rule is, is if you bought your car uh, and you had it for more than a year in the, your home state and then you move, then you don't have to pay taxes. But if it's less than a year, you, you have to pay taxes. But I, I have to say, when, when she asked me initially, when did you buy your car? I found myself thinking, you know, um, I don't know. I guess it was there for about a year, maybe a little over than a year. But you know, sometimes we are tempted to sell our birthright, our integrity for a mess of porridge like Esau in the Old Testament. To give up our integrity for the short-term benefit of getting a sale or getting a break on our taxes. Some of you are starting to fill out your tax returns. We did our taxes yesterday. Careful. It's convenient to use sometimes spiritual language, you know, kind of Jesus-y lingo. Like, uh, you know, I, I, I'm leaving the church. You know, the Lord, is, the Lord is calling us to go to a different church. And this is the same person that got in a fight with somebody else at the church, and they didn't want to actually work toward reconciliation at church. And so what did they do? Well, they left. But... The question I have is, is that honest? Why don't you be honest and say, I had conflict with another person that was unresolved and I didn't want to deal with it, and so I'm leaving. That's honest. Sometimes we use speech and convenience, uh, like, you know, I gave the examples of saying, I'll pray for you, and why do you do that? Well, sometimes, quite frankly, it's a convenient way to end a conversation with someone when they've told you something that's painful. And you don't know what else to say, and so you say, I'll pray for you. But how many times have you said that and then not prayed for that person? Perhaps it would be more honest to say, you know, I don't know what to say right now. I wish I could commit to praying for you, but I, honestly, I probably won't. Actually, don't say that. that would <laughs> try to say something nicer. But hey, at least you're honest. You know, it can be convenient to lie to get out of conflict that the truth may create if you tell the person. And so we deceive, we, we lie, we shade the truth. We avoid telling the truth because we want to conveniently avoid conflict rather than tell the truth and deal with the consequences. 
Sometimes it can be convenient for uh, a person who's a person of faith, a Christian, to lie about and create straw men of, their, of, of non-Christians' positions, the way they think about things, because it's just easier to tear them down and to bolster up their own faith and the faith of people who listen to them. It can be very easy for somebody who is on the right to conflate or distort the, the position of somebody on the left or somebody on the left to create straw men of the person on the right when neither of us have really carefully listened to each other. And it's not an honest interchange. It is full of deceit and distortions. But listen, the real problem with all of this is, is that it, it makes this claim that some of our statements are important and others are not important. Some carry some sort of obligation to be honest to God where the other does not. The person who says, I swear by the temple, but not the gold of the temple. What are they saying? They're saying, look, look, that, that's ridiculous. You know, Jesus says, look, if you swear by heaven, you're swearing by God's throne. If you swear by earth, you're swearing by his footstool. And what Jesus is saying is this, you cannot find a square inch in the whole domain of human existence where God is not present and where your speech is not heard. And Jesus is saying all speech that is spoken before the face of God and done in the presence of God must be honest. Tell the truth. He puts such weight on our words that at one point in the gospel, Jesus says, there is coming a day when you and I, this is sobering to me as a preacher who spends a lot of my time rambling on about, you know, this, that, and the other thing. Jesus says there is coming a day when we will give an account for every idle word we have uttered. Every commitment we make, every move we make, every breath we take. I'll be watching. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's true. There's no word that we utter that does not come before the ears of the Almighty. And what oaths do is they say, if I swear on the Holy Bible, well, then that's a word I need to keep. But otherwise, we're free to lie. Jesus says that's a false dichotomy. All of your speech is before the face of God. So stop the embellishment. Stop the spin and the exaggeration and the verbal smoke screens and speak with simplicity and honesty and integrity. Be direct. And this is the alternative to oaths. Jesus says this, verse 37. And so here it is. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than that comes from evil. And here what Jesus is commending, what he's calling us into, what he's inviting us into are relationships that are marked by simplicity and honesty of speech. I mean, this is what causes relationships, human community, churches, uh, marriages, a parent-child relationships to flourish. It is when we can relate to each other truthfully, with honesty and with simplicity. But I have to say, although Jesus is here commending simplicity in speech, what he's talking about here is by no means simple, is it? And it's not simple because we are all very complicated people. And there's a whole world going on beneath the surface of every single lie. You ever seen one of those uh, pictures of, uh, of an iceberg? 
You know, and above the surface, there might be, you know, 100, 200 feet of uh, iceberg, but you look below the surface and there's 2,000 feet. And this is our hearts. Above the surface might be a lie. It might be, you know, our exaggerations, our penchant for saying things that we have no intention of following through. But below the surface, there is a whole world of conflicted, distorted self. You know, some of us, we, we, what, what you find below the surface is a need to control. And quite frankly, the easiest way to control another person is to use spiritual language. If you want to not, it's kind of like stop the conversation, bring God in. Oh no, God put this on my heart. Well, I guess if God told you to do it, we have no way of disputing it. This is a God thing. Now, to disagree with you is now to disagree with God. Dallas Willard, in his great little section in his book, uh, The Divine Conspiracy, he's got this big chunk in that book on um, the Sermon on the Mount. And in this section, he says this. He says, he says, look, why do we swear? He says this. Why do we invoke God into kind of like our conversation? Why do we use all this Jesus-y lingo to kind of like lace our, our, our statements that we make? He says, do we not do it to impress others with our own sincerity and reliability and thus gain acceptance of what we are saying and of what we want? Don't we do it, he says, to lend weight to our words? And he says this, it is simply a device of manipulation designed to override the judgment and will of the ones they are focused on and to push them aside rather than respecting them and leaving their decision up to them. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that every time you feel like God has put something on your heart and you go share somebody, you should somehow, you know, feel guilty about it or you should never say it. No, be honest. But I am saying that you need to be careful you need to especially be careful when you invoke the name of God and you imbue your statements with God because there's power there. But there's this whole world underneath us that kind of like leads to all these, you know, de deceptive actions and behavior. Years ago, we had a foreign exchange student come and stay with us from uh, the Czech Republic. His name was Pavel. He's a great, great young man. But uh, when, when he first came to our house, he was, you know, 10th, 11th grade student. Uh, he first came to our house, and I remember my mom went out and bought him Taco Bell because she had teenage boys. She knew what, what her boys liked. Her, her boys liked Taco Bell, you know, so she brought him back some Taco Bell. And um, for whatever reason, he kind of wandered off into his bedroom and, you know, ate or whatever. And then he came back. We said, oh, did, did you like it? Oh, yes, oh, yes. You know, he says, I liked it, you know. And, and a few weeks later, my mom was actually in his bedroom cleaning out the drawers, and she found tacos from Taco Bell in the drawers. Now, why didn't he just come out and tell the truth? Well, there's a whole world of reasons. But do you see how important it would have been for him to do that? Because he could have kept getting more and more tacos. His whole, all of his drawers could have been filled with tacos. <laughs> well, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive, right? But beneath the surface, some of us, some of us, what you find there, we need to control others, so we do it with our speech, with our words, with our deception. Some of you, you are incredibly insecure and fearful. And so you're always needing to try to kind of manipulate people's 
picture of you. And, and we've even got, you know, a whole world of social media that empowers us to do this because we take perfect pictures of, of ourselves and family and then we do little things to enhance the picture, to make it look beautiful. And then we, we carefully select images to like present to the public on Facebook or Instagram or whatever. And we're carefully managing our image. But don't be too judgmental, those of you who don't do that sort of thing. You're not on Facebook or Instagram or whatever, because we do it with our words all the time. We, we carefully select what we're going to tell people about ourselves and, and the, the conversations we had and, oh, we, and the people we hang out with and the experiences we had. And even if we need to exaggerate, it's okay because we're, present, we're, we're managing an image because we're terribly insecure and we just need people to like us and we don't feel good about ourselves. Some, some of us, we need to be unique and special, and so we're always, you know, we're telling people kind of like we're framing our own life in such a way that it, it, it seems more difficult than everyone else's life, and, 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 and we've had it worse than everyone else, and you haven't. You're, 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 you're managing, you're, 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 you're twisting, you're, you're, you're being deceptive. And of course, sometimes we lie to ourselves, and sometimes our lies to ourselves are the most destructive of all. We say we're worthless, we're, 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 un, we're unloved, we don't matter. You are lying to yourself, you matter. You are not worthless, you matter to God. And Jesus is, is exhorting us here. He's saying, look, above all else, my community, my people are to be a community of truth. And could you imagine... I mean, could you imagine what would it be like if we were this kind of community? We wouldn't simply be verbally abusive with each other, <laughs> though that could be the danger, couldn't it? I mean, some of you, you're jerks and you say, but I'm honest at least. Yeah, but you're mean, so stop it, <laughs> you know? <laughs> you're a bully. Tim Keller put it like this. He said, love without truth is sentimentality. It supports and affirms us, but it keeps us in denial about our flaws. But truth without love is harshness. It gives us information, but in such a way that we cannot really hear it. So we are called to be a community marked out by truth and love. But I mean, what would it be like if pastors like myself rejected fear-mongering and cheap cliches and instead spoke the truth about God and life and the world? What if Christian marketers rejected deceptive marketing techniques and instead embraced a radical commitment to communicate creatively and winsomely about the truth of a product rather than doing these ridiculous things like taking like these majestic Clydesdale horses, setting them against the backdrop of, you know, um, I've been afraid of changes. Come on, because I know that, that, that. Come on, come on, tell me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, sorry. You're looking at me you're like you're messing up that song. I know. All right. I'm embarrassed. I better move on. But, and tying the, the images and the songs with Budweiser. Like, what does cheap, terrible beer have to do with? Like Clydesdale horses. It's just, you, you, you bring images in. And yet, spin is what we do. It's not just the marketers. What if Christian marketers rejected that sort of thing and instead spoke creatively and winsomely about their products? What if Christian journalists chose not to act as servants to corporate and political and ideological interests, but instead sought to tell the truth 
or if Christian apologists didn't distort the positions of non-Christians, but actually engaged in honest, open, reflective dialogue, or if Christian lawyers and mechanics and dentists and politicians who are committed to being truth-tellers, like engaged in their profession, what would it do to our marriages and our family life? What would it do to us if instead of, you know, lacing all of our statements about each other in nice spiritual lingo as we gossip about each other or share prayer requests about one another. And instead, we just actually directly spoke to each other with simplicity. Wouldn't that be beautiful? What is it going to take? Well, if there is far more below the surface than above the surface... It is going to take more than Jesus simply coming into the world and exhorting us to be a little bit more moral with our speech. Jesus is going to have to come into the world and actually do something to obliterate all that whole world of iceberg below the surface. And this is the good news. The gospel is not good advice. Jesus didn't come into the world to give us a bit more advice. Ethical teachers have been saying for centuries to tell the truth. This is not something new with Jesus. But what Jesus came into the world to do was to actually deal with that whole world of fear and insecurity and our need to control and our need to be needed and our need to be special and all this stuff that's kind of like this conflicted, distorted, false self. Jesus comes in with his incredible love to deal with those things underneath the surface. And on the cross, the eternal love of God was manifest in the world for you. And God sends his spirit into our lives to cause the love of God to become something real in our lives so that finally we can be freed up from our need to always be twisting, manipulating, and presenting, and, and, and you know, false self. And Jesus says, stop it. You are loved by me. You don't need that anymore. Come into the light. Receive the love of God. And be free from your need to present yourself as something you're not. Come into your relationships and speak truthfully to each other. It's going to be okay. God loves you. It's going to be okay. We can be ourselves, we can speak truthfully, we can be honest with each other, we can live with this kind of simplicity because the love of God is real and it is manifest and we have become sons and daughters of God and nothing can change that through Jesus Christ. So receive that truth and then go out and become a person of truth. Let's pray together. Our great God and Father, we come to you as a people who are complicated. Sometimes we don't even know ourselves. We don't know why we just told that lie. We don't know why we needed to present ourselves this way. God, we are a a rich conundrum of secrets. But we just ask, oh God, that you would give us the strength by your spirit 
to come into the light of your truth. To be honest, to be exposed in your light, but also to receive your eternal and your unbreakable ocean of love. And would your love become something so real and so palpable in our own hearts and lives that it truly frees us up to be honest, to be real, and to be truth speakers. Truthful with ourselves, truthful to each other, and truthful with you. God, enable us, we pray, to build our lives, to root our hearts in your love. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.